Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we brought ourselves uh, by your will and by your counsel and guidance to the end of another book study. Father, we, uh, we count these down not as a matter of pride or personal accomplishment, Father, but as a guide, as a marker for faithfulness and for diligence, um, as a way of encouraging ourselves and others to stay with a constant and disciplined study of your word. For we know, Father, that's how you have uh, instructed us to approach it. That's why you gave it to us. That's why you tell us that we should meditate on it and that uh, you will bless those who would listen. And I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to hear uh, the conclusion as we may have heard the beginning. Guide our understanding, prepare our hearts to live it out, and to concern ourselves with what you've asked. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight we wrap up Paul's first letter to Timothy, and we're entering the final chapter today. Uh, Last week in chapter 5, we saw Timothy getting direction on how to handle difficult political issues in the body of Christ, how to care for widows, how to handle that need without letting the charity become an opportunity for abuse, and then how to show proper respect and honor to the elders of the church so long as they were serving well. But then at the same time being able to correct them, even though Timothy's young age might have made that a difficult task. So in all of those things, Paul asked Timothy to be fair-minded, unbiased, and deliberate in applying the rules that he gave him. And in particular, he ended by saying to Timothy, don't elevate leaders too quickly, because evidently the problems found in Ephesus were due, at least in part, to poor leaders and false teachers who gained their authority through the gullible. Those men were wrecking havoc among impressionable Christians in Ephesus, which then led Paul to give the instructions he did to his protege. So Paul knew the difficulties that Timothy was going to face as a young, inexperienced pastor in a pagan city, tackling all of these problems. And so he encouraged him, be strong, trust in your calling, and in your anointing by the Spirit. He even suggested that Timothy should take a little wine, uh, I guess for medicinal purposes. Now we move forward into Paul's final instructions, but he presents them in a very similar fashion, and I think it's helpful to see the comparison between the two chapters. In the earlier chapter, chapter 5, Paul taught concerning two groups in the church that stood at opposite ends of a social spectrum. You saw elders on the one end and widows on the other end, the greatest and, on the other hand, the least honored in the church. Paul used those extremes because he wanted to emphasize that everyone in the church deserves honor, but only as appropriate. And yet he also added all were expected to act in keeping with Christ's commands. No one is above the law. Therefore, Timothy could not show bias in the church as he applied these rules. He couldn't let his sympathy for widows lead him to extend charity when it wasn't justified, nor could he allow misbehaving elders to escape proper judgment. Everybody gets what they deserve. Everybody's being fairly treated. That was the idea. Move now into chapter 6, and you find a similar contrast, but this time looking at opposite ends of an economic spectrum. So in chapter 5, it was a social spectrum. In chapter 6, it's economic. He gives instructions to Timothy concerning the rich and the poor. And he begins first with the poor in verses 1 through 16, and specifically with the misbehavior of the poor. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And as I said, in the first half of this chapter, he's addressing 
the situation of the poor, but at first glance, you may not realize that this is Paul's focus because Paul, Paul begins by speaking to all who are under the yoke as slaves. Briefly look down the page for a second. Look down to verse 17 in this chapter. And in verse 17, you clearly see Paul moving away from the first group to the next group, that is the rich in the church, and speaks to them on what they should be doing. So that's the contrast here in chapter 6. Rich versus poor. But Paul begins by addressing the poor as slaves because in the first century Roman Empire, that's what often happened to the very poor. Slavery in Paul's day was almost always indentured servitude, not forced conscription into labor. So you'd have a man, perhaps, who fell on hard times financially. He couldn't support himself or his family. And as a result, he'd be forced to sell himself into slavery. His slavery was voluntary in the sense that no one compelled him to become a slave. His own debts forced his hand so that slavery became his last option. So a desperately poor man would sell himself to a master who was willing to take him on, and that master would arrange to pay that man's debts and provide him room and board, both for himself and his family. And then in return, that man and his family became slaves of the master's household or in the master's business for a period of time. That family was not merely an employee. They were slaves. They voluntarily gave up their liberty, and they had very few rights, if any, under law. They could be beaten for misbehavior or disobedience. They could even be killed under some circumstances lawfully. That's what it meant to be a slave. A slave that was faithful would be treated generally pretty well. He and his family would have food. They'd have board. They were assured of employment. Over time, he could work to repay the debt that his master had paid on his behalf. And in cases where they served faithfully and fully, the master might grant the servant freedom once the debt had been repaid through his labor. But freedom was not guaranteed. A cruel or greedy master might never grant it. And in other cases, a slave might actually prefer to remain in service to a kind master who treats him well. And if he did, he would commit himself to being a slave for life to that man. And the Bible uses a term for that kind of servitude. It's called a bond servant. So slavery of this kind that I described was very common. In Paul's day, it is estimated that there were somewhere around 60 million slaves of this kind in the Roman Empire. They represented the lowest financial class within Roman society. They were similar to the phrase today we would use is the working poor of today. Hardworking people enslaved either by their own debt or lack of other options in life, etc. And they're working just to get by without a lot of freedom. When Christianity began to sweep through the Roman Empire in the first century, though, the faith reached into all levels of society, all classes, including the slave class. And so as a result, it opened up an interesting situation. Men and women who were indentured servants, for example, in Ephesus, where Timothy is, heard the call of freedom in Christ, believing the word. They became part of the body of Christ. They became the church. And now with his new identity in Christ, the question naturally followed for this group of people, what did their faith mean for their status as slaves? And to that question, the Bible gives the same answer as to any other group of humanity. Seek to honor Christ. And in verse 1, Paul describes these people as those who are under the yoke as slaves. That phrase describes someone under a burden It's a veiled reference to the financial burdens that placed the person in slavery in the first place. Paul's reminding his audience that they are slaves for reasons of their own making. 
They incurred a debt or some other financial burden which necessitated their slavery. Keep in mind that the way we think of slavery from our experiences in this part of the world through the last 200 years has no bearing on the kind of slavery we're talking about here. It's an entirely different situation. In fact, you'd be better to compare the kind of slavery we're talking about in the Bible with the fact that you're a slave to your mortgage holder or to your car loan holder in the sense that you have made an agreement to go into debt, but now that obligates you to certain service of labor to pay it back. The difference, of course, is that you haven't lost your liberty apart from that. In this day and age, though, that's how the arrangement worked. And therefore, Paul says to this group, their newfound relationship with Christ did not change their obligations. Just as if a person today with significant credit card debt or college loans, when they come to faith in Christ, we could say that person is under a yoke of indebtedness. Nevertheless, we don't assume that their faith can be a reason for them to walk away from those financial obligations. Our freedom in Christ is spiritual, not financial. And therefore, Paul tells the poor, which he calls slaves again, in the church, to regard their master as worthy of honor. Notice Paul does not say that all masters are deserving of all honor. On the contrary, many masters weren't deserving of any honor. Many were unkind or deceptive or neglectful of their slaves. Nevertheless, Paul says, consider them worthy of all honor. In other words, even if they aren't truly worthy of it. He's calling the Christian slave to honor Christ in the same way that Christians are called to honor Christ in any walk of life, through excellence where you are. No matter what your station in life, you're called to excel in human terms so as to reflect honor upon the Lord that you confess to be your Savior. And as Jesus commanded in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So a slave would glorify Christ by being a good slave. And the worse the treatment for that slave, the worse treatment they receive from their master, the more opportunity they have to glorify Christ by honoring that master. The world thinks in an opposite way. The world assumes, well, you only show honor where it's due. And a Christian, and particularly a slave, when they choose to show honor to even unworthy masters, that would bring that much more praise upon Christ because it becomes evident that they are willing to extend honor even when it's not due. Furthermore, Paul tells slaves not to show disrespect to their master if their master is a believer. This is a particularly difficult problem in the early church. Often you would find the master coming to faith first, and by his influence, many of his own slaves in his household might also come to faith. Ironically, the master would become the evangelist of his own slaves. And thereafter, you have believing slaves who begin, in some cases, to expect that their believing master would show favor on them on account of their shared faith. So perhaps they expect freedom or easier work assignments, or perhaps they just assume they can neglect their duties without fear of retribution, for we're all now part of the body of Christ, right? Paul corrects this misconception in verse 2. He orders believing slaves to serve their believing master all the more, he says. The slave should be even more hardworking, even more obedient, because he knows that the recipient of his labor is now a fellow Christian. So that means knowing that you serve a fellow member of the body should motivate you to be better at your work, not to take liberties against that person. Remember, the slave was usually there because he made a financial agreement, not by force. So that person had no reason to expect his master to forgo his reasonable service under the agreement, no more than you might expect your banker to forgive your mortgage merely because you both attend the same church. It's the same idea. 
Today, this kind of indentured servant relationship is much rarer, though not altogether gone. You still see it in some cultures. Nevertheless, you can find other situations in our culture that closely match the one that Paul is addressing here. For example, besides the comparisons of paying off debt, which I already mentioned, there are other ones. If you work for a harsh boss, you should regard him or her as worthy of honor for the same reason that Paul just told slaves to honor their masters. Remember Christ himself, he submitted to undeserved harsh treatment to bring you and me into heaven. So how can we complain if the Lord is asking us to endure a little harsh treatment at work or at school for the sake of his glory? Or what if you work for a believing boss? You can't let your shared faith become opportunity to be less reliable, to be less honorable. You know, come in a little late, but assume he's going to let you go because, by the way, we're both Christian, right? On the contrary, you're supposed to strive all the more to bless that person who oversees your work so that you can be a blessing to them as a believer. Similarly, those who are in military service or under some other constraints in their life, you should not assume that your faith gives you cause to avoid the responsibilities that you freely or otherwise took on. On the contrary, get more faithful, be more committed, honor Christ. And Paul ends verse 2, repeating his command to Timothy to teach and preach these principles. He's reiterating this command because it's evident the church in Ephesus was struggling with a kind of rebellion on the part of believing slaves. We know Ephesus would have had many slaves within that city. It was a very rich city, very prosperous city. And of course, money attracts, right? So a city with a lot of rich people is a city looking for a lot of poor people to work in service to the wealthy. And it was very much then a city of the haves and the have-nots. And as Paul and Timothy worked to bring the gospel to the city, many of those slaves would have entered into the faith along with some of their wealthy masters. And if you look at some of Paul's other letters, like, for example, 1 Corinthians, Paul says the Lord was intentionally drawing poor believers disproportionately into the church. He told Corinth that not many of you were noble, not many of you were mighty, because he says the Lord was choosing those of lesser status over those of higher status intentionally, so as to shame the wisdom of the nobility and the like of the unbelieving world. So knowing the Lord works in similar ways in general, it's reasonable for us to assume that the church in Ephesus would have had this shared kind of low-class demographic, disproportionately more poor people, and therefore it's likely that the church that Timothy oversaw had a fairly high percentage of slaves in it. And all of those slaves, and we could just say for our sake, all of the poor entering into the church had led at least some, it appears, to think that they could shed their shackles and expect the church to fund their their new lifestyle. They don't have to worry anymore about being slaves, much like the younger widows from chapter 5 who felt that their faith was a means of escaping their situation. In this case, escaping slavery and poverty. The slaves apparently were arguing that God wanted them to be free, wanted them to be wealthy. It was the ancient version of the prosperity gospel that has decimated so much of the church today. That false doctrine has been around the church for a long time. And the tactics of false teachers may have changed over the centuries since the times of Ephesus, but the underlying deception has never changed. At its heart, that misteaching confuses the physical gains that are claimed by the false teachers for the spiritual gains that the Bible does promise. It confuses one for the other. So false teachers will point to verses in Scripture that say that Christ is promising us riches and promising us freedom. And then they'll twist the meaning of those verses out of context to say that, you see, God is promising us earthly riches, earthly freedom. When in reality, in context, those verses are very clearly speaking of heavenly, eternal riches and freedom from sin and condemnation. And so Paul tells Timothy how to deal 
with what we could call today prosperity teaching. To that, Paul says in verse 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says someone who would teach a doctrine contrary to what he just taught on slavery and poverty, they are acting against sound words, against the commandments of Jesus, and against godliness. Three different things. First, they are acting against sound words. Literally, the words in Greek there mean a healthy message. But today, you might just say common sense. So it's an understanding of something that is self-evidently contrary to common sense. So to teach that slaves, for example, should expect their masters to release them merely because they became Christian, that is self-evidently nonsense. It doesn't pass the common sense test. It's not sound words. We only need to look around the world to see that this is not true. Millions, if not billions, of believers are not rich. And therefore, it's self-evidently the case that there is no promise that if you become a believer, God will make you rich. You just have to see the world in an honest way. In fact, the history of the church teaches this has never been true. Therefore, even if you don't know a stitch of Scripture, you can reject the prosperity gospel on its face. It doesn't pass the sound words test, the common sense test. Furthermore, Paul says, someone who advocates prosperity or the elimination of poverty as a condition of faith, he says, is not agreeing with the words of Jesus Christ. First, Jesus says, we will always have the poor. That's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and in John. What he means by that is, you cannot solve the problem of poverty because it is a condition that God himself is permitting for good reason. God is not, at least yet, interested in removing poverty from the earth. By the way, that doesn't mean we don't have an interest in trying to support the needs of those who we have opportunity to support. This is not an endorsement of being callous or insensitive. What we're saying, though, is that Jesus' words concerning poverty do not indicate that the Lord desires to eliminate it in the world or in the church. In fact, to go further, Jesus spoke more about money in the Gospels than on any other single topic. And in all that he says, he consistently argues for us to have less attention and desire for wealth, not more. Just consider a few of his statements. In Matthew 19:23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Mark 4:18. Speaking of the sower and the seed, he says, And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Luke 6:22 Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the son of man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Then he adds, but woe to you who are rich for you're receiving your comfort in full. And then finally Luke 12:19 And I will say to my soul Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
And I've just sampled a few. You get the point though, right? So when you hear men advocating that the church should adopt some expectation of riches or freedom from want, they are contradicting Christ. And then finally, Paul says they're not speaking a doctrine that conforms to godliness. And this I find to be a very simple and important test that you should apply to any teaching that you ever hear. For example, ask yourself, if we did act in keeping with their teachings, does the teaching I'm hearing lead to greater godliness or less? If I do as the instruction would require, do I end up in a more godly place in life or less godly? And that test will almost never fail you. In this case, it's easy to see how this doctrine would be contrary to godliness. The body of Christ becomes less godly, not more godly. The poor, the slaves, would become less interested in serving their masters honorably if they thought they had some reasonable expectation of God just plopping a bunch of money in their lap because they were Christian or freeing them from their indentured servitude simply because they became a believer. Instead, they abandoned their duties in an expectation that the Lord was about to free them. Furthermore, even if they did get freed, they would adopt a greedy, materialistic heart that sought for things of this world, presumably because God himself endorsed it. Obviously, we all have a degree of want in our lives, which we all have to fight in order to control. That's just normal. But if there is a teaching that gives you license to be wanting, that's wrong. And it will lead you into further ungodliness. So remember these three tests as you receive instruction from anyone. Does it pass the common sense test? Does it agree with Jesus' own teaching? Does it promote godliness? Evidently, certain men in Ephesus were teaching a false view of poverty. And Paul says in verse 4, these men were conceited and they understood nothing. The Greek word for conceited could also be translated proud. It's the same word for proud. Pride is seeking to be praised or respected or honored above what's proper. These vain, proud men were therefore seeking to get attention they didn't deserve by drawing a crowd. And friends, nothing draws an adoring audience better than a message that says God's prepared to make you rich. That's guaranteed to fill the house. It's a fleshly message. It's delivered by conceited messengers. And it's looking for prideful hearts. Secondly, Paul says such men understand nothing. He means they have nothing of value to offer on this matter, on this issue. It's like taking medical advice from your postman. He may be well-meaning, but it doesn't mean he has anything to offer you on that topic. Because a teacher who advocates for something that doesn't pass the common sense test, it is self-evidently wrong and, I should add, obviously contradictory to Scripture. Anyone who's advocating for that kind of stuff, they're proving themselves to be willfully deceptive. They're not merely mistaken. They're not just confused. They are purposely deceiving an audience. Paul says they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. The Greek translated morbid interest. It means an unhealthy desire. In other words, they don't have your best interest at heart. They have only their own interests at heart, an unhealthy desire. And they're filled, Paul says, with envy and strife and abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. So clearly these men are ungodly. They're interested in controversy. Why would they be interested in controversy? It draws attention. Like the way a fight on a school playground always draws an audience. Well, these men are seeking to be sensational, provocative. If you've had occasion for whatever reason to watch some of what goes on today in this arena, this prosperity gospel false teaching, you can catch it on TV, I'm sure, or maybe even in the city. Then you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're showmen. They look to be provocative. They look to say things from the stage that 
shocks you a little bit. They will use, as Paul said, abusive language to silence their critics or to shock their audience. He says they're filled with the very same envy that they are inspiring in their own audience. And they raise evil suspicions against any who oppose them. And Paul says these teachers seek to create friction between men of depraved mind who are deprived of truth. This reminds me of a story my father told me about his early days when he was in the Navy years ago before he was married. He was a naval officer stationed on a U.S. aircraft carrier in the South Pacific. And his roommate that he had to bunk with was a Marine officer. And whenever the ship would dock in a foreign port, they would go ashore, the two of them, and they would visit the bars, like sailors do. They would visit the bars in the cities of these foreign ports. And after they go into a bar and drink a few beers, the Marine, my dad's buddy, would intentionally pick a fight with some stranger in the bar. Once they had the entire bar embroiled in a fist fight, my dad and the Marine would get down on their hands and knees and crawl out unnoticed, only to visit another bar and start the whole process over again. That's an example of conceited men with morbid interests in disputes, creating friction between men who are depraved and deprived of the truth. Now, why would anybody do such a thing? Well, because the thrill of it, I guess, because it feeds the pride and the ego. But ultimately, it's because it's a means to gain. Notice Paul says that they do all of these things. They see godliness, in the case of the false teachers, as a means of gain. And when Paul says godliness here, he's using the term sarcastically. Obviously, obviously, these men are far from godliness, as Paul explained, but they seek the appearance of godliness to gain a following so that they can profit from that following. In my father's case, he profited by avoiding paying his bar tab as he escaped during the melee. In the case of the teachers in Ephesus, they probably extracted money from their followers in much the same way that prosperity heretics do today. They encourage their followers to show their appreciation for the message of riches by donating to the ministry. I always find it just incredibly ironic that people think they can become rich by giving their money to people who promise them riches. And so as long as money has existed, evil men have sought ways to take it away from gullible people. So to contradict this wrong teaching, Paul then explains the proper perspective on wealth, but he's explaining it to the poor. He's trying to help the poor understand wealth properly. Verse 6, he says... But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now remember, we're still in the section of the chapter addressed to slaves, or we could say the poor. But obviously what Paul's giving now is advice that anyone can take. It's not limited to people of low economic status. Remember, in Paul's day, there was very little middle class as we think of it today. The majority of people in society would have been day laborers or soldiers or slaves. A few above them might have been small business owners or bureaucrats, and they would have had something close to a middle class lifestyle. And then even fewer above them would have been wealthy and privileged. And so there was very little opportunity to increase one's economic status within Roman society. You often stayed right where you started. So what Paul's doing is giving advice that's appropriate for anyone who isn't at the top echelon of society. That top group he addresses later. And he says, for us, godliness can actually be a means of great gain. Now, in this case, he's dropped the sarcasm, obviously. He's speaking literally about true godliness. He says, if you pursue godliness according to God's word, with true hearts, honest intentions, well, there is great gain. But the gain, first and foremost, is spiritual. You're going to gain the blessing of spiritual maturity, which fundamentally is freedom from your own sin and its consequences in your life. So I want you to imagine, if you can for a moment, 
the joy that would be found in your life if you weren't the victim of your own sin. Where all your desires are aligned with God's heart. Where all your time is spent one way or another serving Him as He has called you to do. That would truly be great gain, even now. Far more than the pleasures you can gain by money. There are more than a few stories floating around that you can find of people who have spent time in and amongst the most rich of society and they'll all come back telling you the same thing. What a miserable group of people. With rare exceptions. What unfulfilled, miserable lives they all seem to be living despite their bloated bank accounts. But secondly, the Bible teaches that your pursuit of godliness here gives opportunity for great gain, great blessing in the kingdom. That blessing far exceeds any kind of gain you can obtain for yourself here. So the question is, would you like to receive material blessings here? Should God be willing to grant them to you now? Or would you rather put them on hold for what he'll offer you in the kingdom? And any student of scripture would know the answer to that question. The answer is, we would want to wait. Even common sense tells us that pursuing earthly wealth is folly. Verse 6, Paul says, you know, you brought nothing into this world. That is to say, when you were born, obviously. And you're not going to take anything out of it. And that profound truth argues against spending a lot of time and energy building up earthly wealth. For it will fail us in the very most important moment of our life. The moment you die and you face the Creator with nothing but yourself. So the question is, how do you come to that moment with the most in your hand? You can't bring anything physical. All you can bring is spiritual things. Nothing physical will accompany us into that moment. What I want then are things that can cross that line into eternity. I want the blessing of spiritual maturity. I want to have deservedly earned spiritual riches. And if you say, well, how can I reorganize my thinking in my life to be maximizing that potential? Paul says, well, the secret is really simple. Contentment. Contentment is a funny word. It means recognizing that what you have now is sufficient. The word is funny because it does not relate to the magnitude of your wealth, nor to the degree of your need. A person can have many possessions and lack contentment. Or they can have no possessions and still be content with what they have. Likewise, a man can live in need of nothing and yet lack contentment. Or another can have great need in their life and yet remain content. Contentment is not the result of what we acquire. It's the result of training our heart. That's why Paul says elsewhere that he learned to be content. In Philippians 4.11, he says, Not that I am speaking from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So contentment is a learned outlook on life circumstances that understands that what you have is God's will for your life. Contentment results not from seeking sufficient wealth, but from seeking godliness. Therefore, this is how a contented person sees life. They see trials and they see tests and they see deprivation as tools in the hands of God molding them into a mature follower of Christ. With contentment, then, you're free to profit spiritually from what God is doing in your life, even through wants. And, as Paul says, the gain you get from that struggle is great indeed. On the other hand, if we're busy chasing the things of this world and we're bemoaning our circumstances, we miss the opportunity for that eternal gain. So the lesson here is profound. Those who pursue wealth instead of godliness gain neither... And those who pursue godliness instead of wealth gain both. Obviously, we all have needs. So we can't completely ignore a pursuit of material things. The Bible doesn't expect that. God knows you have needs. And so he actually defines here 
for you. What is the minimum you're allowed to go seeking materially? Paul says in verse 8, if you have food and covering, well, then you can be content. The Greek word for covering is simply the same word for clothing. So food and clothing are your minimums. Paul says, if you lack food or you lack clothing, well, then naturally no one, including God, expects you to be content under those circumstances. God does not ask that you be content without food. God does not want you to be content being naked. And ladies, this is not biblical support for shopping sprees at the outlet mall. He's talking about the inability to cover yourselves. But if you have food, if you're not starving to death, and if you have something to wear, then the Bible is saying you could be content if you wanted to be, if you could learn it. Does that standard surprise you a little bit? Maybe you would have expected that the minimum might include shelter or employment or medical care or the latest iPhone. There's something we would tell ourselves is the minimum for contentment. The Lord isn't saying you can't have those things. He's saying that you must learn to be content even without them. Because if you learn contentment, then you find less motivation to seek for more. And by setting aside the pursuit of more, you leave more time and energy to pursue godliness, which is always the better pursuit. Jesus said in Matthew 6.31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and notice all these things will be added to you. Jesus emphasized in that example food and clothing only. The same two things that Paul just mentioned. God, he says, will provide for his children at least the minimums necessary for contentment. Everything else you receive, that's icing on the proverbial cake. Meanwhile, spend your time seeking for his kingdom and his righteousness, which is a way of saying seek for godliness, and let all those other things take care of themselves. If you fail to move in this direction... Paul says, you risk a disastrous end to your life. And that's where Paul goes next in verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich, still speaking about the poor now, mind you, anyone other than the highest echelons of our society, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the opposite of contentment is wanting to get rich. Desire for riches is a seductive mistress. It pulls you into an embrace that's hard to escape once you become entangled. And that desire prepares you to jump at any chance you can to fulfill that dream. And so Paul says you'll fall into temptations. Traps, in other words, set by the enemy. Perhaps at the worst, you might take opportunity to steal or defraud or lie concerning something so that you can get what you want. Or, as it appears the case in Ephesus, the slave would succumb to false teaching, telling that slave they can just leave their master or they can abscond on their commitments to fulfill their obligation. Paul says those are foolish. They're harmful desires that plunge men into ruin. I'm sure we could sit here for hours and come up with our own list of modern versions of the same. The stupid, foolish things people are willing to do because money is so attractive to them. How many internet scams would go nowhere if people had no interest in getting rich? And then Paul issues one of the most quoted and often misquoted verses in the Bible. He says, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Sometimes Paul's thought is truncated to simply be money is the root of all evil. Obviously, the context of First Timothy is a discussion of loving money instead of loving God and being content, right? 
So it's that desire that's the problem, that love of money that leads to the problem. Money, just in and of itself, in the hands of the content or the godly, well, that's a powerful and positive tool that God can put to work. So money itself isn't inherently evil. Like anything else in the world, it can be used in godly or ungodly ways. But when the desire for it eclipses our desire to be godly or to be content, well, then it's setting us up for ruin. Paul emphasizes the truth of his statement by reminding his audience that many already in the church had fallen for this trap. Their longing for money had led them, he says, to wander away from a faith, like a child going off path in the forest, maybe chasing a butterfly or something. And as they they move away from the path, that chase leads them oblivious to the dangers involved of getting off track. Before long, they find themselves lost in the woods. They can't find their way back. It's that idea, wandering away from the faith. We're not talking about losing faith, losing salvation. These things are not possible anyway. We're talking about a Christian the whole way. But a Christian who wanders away from walking with Christ, and as a result, inevitably they suffer, Paul says. He uses the term piercing. They pierce themselves with many griefs. In keeping with my forest path analogy, the piercing would suggest a wandering child caught in a thorn bush. But in light of what Paul's been speaking about here, slaves, he may have been alluding to literal piercings. Disobedient slaves could be disciplined in a variety of ways, including physical discipline, of course. So Paul may be suggesting that those slaves who wander off following the false teaching, leading them to become disobedient to their masters or not show them honor, might suffer literal piercings as a result of the discipline that the master could bring upon them. And in that sense, Paul says, you pierced yourself. You pierced yourself by loving money more than you loved Christ. That's what he's saying. And of course, by analogy or by metaphor, we can talk to all kinds of other tragedies that happen to Christians who get taken away by a love of money. Although in many cases, I think we overlook the way it actually happens. It's not someone literally running after money. It's someone who spends way too much time at work. They move from career to career to career rather than staying put in one church where God can grow them in godliness, albeit at a lower salary. Or it's parents who don't put time and effort into raising their kids in the love and the admonition of the Lord because they're both too busy chasing their own pursuits in life. It goes a million ways, and many of them are societally or socially acceptable in our busy culture. No one stops long enough to say, what matters more, my career, my bank account, or my own godliness and that of my family? Before turning to instruct the rich, Paul then warns Timothy not to follow in the footsteps of these greedy slaves. 11 and 12, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in presence of many witnesses. Timothy must flee, he says, from teaching of this kind and the effects it has on the church. He says to Timothy, have nothing to do with it. What's interesting about Paul's admonition of Timothy is it seems to suggest Timothy was poor. That's probably no shock. And as such, I think Paul has some concern that Timothy may have been vulnerable to the teaching that was happening in the church. And so he's going out of his way to counsel Timothy, don't fall for it. Don't believe it. In place of pursuing money, he tells his protege to pursue six spiritual goals. He says righteousness. Pursuing righteousness means devoting yourself to knowing Christ more in his word so that you can walk more closely with him. That leads naturally to the second goal, which is godliness. Godliness is a life of obedience made possible by the Spirit working in us to put away sin at every opportunity. The pursuit of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness in His Word, 
leads us to a pursuit of our own godliness in obedience to what we learned in the Word. If you just took those first two steps, by the way, forget the other four for a minute, that's a lifelong challenge all by itself right there. Repeat steps one and two forever, and you probably wouldn't go too wrong. But also, seek faith and love. Faith is the pursuit of the life of the body of Christ. That is, the faith. The idea is to pursue the faith. So from a pursuit of God's righteousness and your own godliness, then comes the natural desire to share your pursuit with others who are doing the same thing in the community of faith. And within that community, the body of Christ, in other words, you pursue love, both from others and for others in the family of God. You seek for loving relationships, showing love to others, receiving love from others. And then finally, he says, you seek perseverance and gentleness. You seek to persevere in your own life of following Christ among your brothers and sisters. When the flesh or the world or the enemy causes you to stumble, you get right back up. You don't give in. You don't say, woe is me. You don't say, I guess this isn't for me. I can't do it after all. I might as well just quit. You persevere. No setback is caused to stop. And when others in the body of Christ around you fall in their walk, you respond in gentleness. Remembering, hey, we all have weaknesses. Together, we're all pursuing these things to the same eternal gain. And we're all in this together. Paul asked Timothy, fight the good fight. Now, in the context of what we just heard, the fight that Paul is describing is not a fight against the false teachers per se, although clearly there is a fight there as well. It's the fight inside every believer. So often we're ready to fight against those we see as enemies outside the church or even inside the church. But how often are we willing to fight the sin and temptation in our own lives? It is interesting to me how quickly church will rally around fighting some outside threat apologetically or however, but we don't spend nearly as much time fighting the inward threat. And yet that's precisely the fight that I think Paul is calling Timothy to wage. The fight against the flesh, the fight against the schemes of the enemy which conspire to pull us off course, it will always be a fight because the sinful flesh nature you have, it never rests. It never gives up trying to corrupt your walk. So when you decide to take a holiday from pursuing godliness, you're giving the flesh opportunity to gain yardage while you're not fighting back. Paul calls this fight the good fight because it yields good outcomes. A fight against sin produces godliness, which brings blessing. And likewise, the fight against false teachers would help prevent others from being caught in their traps. But ultimately, it's a fight inside yourself. That's why he's warning Timothy, you man of God, pursue godliness, fight this fight. Don't give in to the urges of your flesh to seek for these other things. Take hold, he says, of the eternal life. Timothy was called into faith, Paul says, in front of many witnesses. And now he's saying, live up to that. Take hold of it. In other words, do what you said you were going to do when you professed your faith publicly. He's appealing to Timothy's honor to act according to his profession of faith. Don't let others down. I think this is a strong appeal that not enough pastors, for that matter, not enough Christians, are hearing in a daily way persevere in your pursuit of Christ in your walk of faith. If you can't do those things for your own sake, do it for all the other people you're going to let down. Do it for the family members that look up to you. Do it for the people in the church that think you're all that when they really don't realize how bad you are. It's not disingenuous. Whatever motivates you to seek godliness, let it motivate you. And for Paul, the argument was, a lot of people saw you on the day you walked into the faith and professed, don't let them down. Take hold of your eternal life, as he says. Now, he ends his section with the poor with a beautiful little doxology, verse 13 and 14. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, 
that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. A charge is a formal exhortation under the authority of a higher power. So Paul charges Timothy according to the power of the Father and the Son to keep a good confession, saying, by the power of the Father and the Son, you are now to keep this charge that I've given you, to keep this instruction. And notice how he describes both the Father and the Son in the Godhead. He says, the Father is the one who gives life to all things. And Christ is the one who made a good confession before his death. Why these details? Because he's reminding Timothy, you know, if you're ever tempted to chase after earthly things because of the false teaching, just remember the Father is the one who gives true life to all things. And if you're ever tempted to go back on your confession, remember, Christ kept his confession in the face of crucifixion so that he could bring you to salvation. Follow their examples, in other words. Which is why Paul calls Timothy to keep his testimony unstained until the appearing of Christ. You can't run a race well if you fail to finish. The test of life is your testimony at the end. No one will have a life without failings, but a life that never gives up seeking to please Christ, seeking godliness, however much you may obtain, that is the testimony that Paul is asking of Timothy and for all of us. Paul ends praising the Father who is the King above all, who alone possesses eternal life, who dwells in unapproachable light. Notice as he says, no man has or will ever see the Father. This is proof that the Father is invisible and never to be witnessed by humanity. The only member of the Godhead that any human being has ever seen or will ever see is the Son. He is the incarnate member, the physical member of the Godhead. And with that, Paul moves to instructions to the final group. Paul says in verse 16, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. If you were to look at this room according to world demographics, not necessarily U.S. demographics, you would probably represent about the top 5%, maybe the top 2% of wealth in the world, most of us, because the average country is quite a bit poorer than the U.S., and the average worker in the average country is making a fraction of what we're making. So be careful, because by what standards do you consider yourself poor or rich? My guess is, whichever one of these two instructions you cared for the least, that's probably the one talking to you. This is how you're to see your riches in light of your faith. And quite pointedly, notice Paul refers to them as those who are rich in this present world. The point is, the wealthy are not to take their position of wealth for granted. You may have it now. Don't get too used to it. That statement reminds the rich that their riches aren't going to follow them necessarily into eternity. In fact, it suggests they won't. Unless the rich adopt the right attitude concerning their wealth, this truth is in keeping with Jesus' words, which we read earlier, if you remember, when he, he said that it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. Here's what he means. problem with wealth is the way it influences your heart. A rich Christian is under a very stern test. They have been challenged by God. The test is this. Will they protect their wealth, use it only on their own interests, or will they share it for the sake of the body of Christ and the kingdom? Protecting it in a miserly way will bring condemnation. 
Ironically then, the richer a Christian is, the more likely they will give cause for God to deny them wealth in the kingdom because of the love of money that might be created out of having so much. I mean, how long are you going to have it? A few decades? Or you leave it to your kids, which, what good was that for anyone? And then you enter into eternity, and now in eternity, what you're given to do, what you're given to receive, how your eternal life is structured, the Bible says, will be a reflection on how praiseworthy you were in service to Christ and in the pursuit of godliness now. So Paul tells them, don't act in a conceited, prideful way. They must retain humility and a certain disaffection for their own wealth. That is not to say that they have to give it all away or they have to live as if they don't possess anything. That's not the case. But rather, they must see their wealth as a tool, not a private reserve to be hoarded and used selfishly. Something that's been given them for the benefit of the kingdom, they are a steward, and the test is, will they steward it well? And that's why I say it's a severe test. I'm thankful I don't have more than I have because I'm not sure I'd be up to this test. It's seductive and it's hard to pass. There's so many toys to buy and not enough time. They only make one iPhone a year. You know, I mean, you can't buy more than that. Paul says they might place their hope in their own riches. And this is a believer we're talking about. A believer can make this mistake. Even though you're saved by grace through a true faith in Jesus Christ, nevertheless, you can live as if your hope is actually in your wealth. You can make every decision in life based on how it impacts your wealth or your gaining of it or your use of it, rather than thinking of everything you do in life based on how much it will glorify Christ or bring godliness to your own walk. That's placing hope in the uncertainties of wealth. And Paul adds the word uncertainties there to simply reflect the old saying, easy come, easy go. One day you may wake up and find yourself wealthy because of inheritance or because of stock market or because of retirement. And if on that day you begin to fix your hope for the future on that wealth that is now yours, then what will we do when that wealth goes? And the world is filled with stories of wealth that has been made and lost in the same lifetime. I know men who said they've done it multiple times. Didn't you figure it out after the first time? But no, they did it again. And if I talk to those men, and I've talked to a few, none of them ever thought they were going to lose their wealth when they had it. They're not prepared for that outcome. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, Paul says. He supplies us richly with all good things. So the point being, put your hope in the one who supplies not in the supply he gave you. For if you come to worship the provision instead of the provider, you can expect him, I think, to remove that provision just to make the point to you that you got off track. So what are the rich to do then if they have riches? We just said they're not expected to give it all away. You never see that here. I want to point that out as well for those of you who may be feeling a bit worried now about whether you have too much money. If you do, you know, you should see me. I mean, I can help you with that problem. But honestly, if you're concerned with, well, what is this asking of me? Notice there is no instruction from Paul in anything he says to give up wealth, to impoverish yourself as some act of piety. There's nothing in the Bible that expects that. The rich can be very useful in the body of Christ when they have an eternal perspective. What they are to do, Paul says in verse 18, is to first be rich in good works. That is, if you have plenty of money, usually that means you have freedom. Freedom in how you spend your time. Freedom in how you spend your money. And you should use that time and energy and resources to serve the body of Christ. Don't let your wealth make you aloof, unapproachable, never around because you're jetting about all the time to some foreign land. Instead, be a servant to the needy because the wealth has given you the freedom to be that much more of a servant. Compared to that poor Joe who has to work 60 hours a week just to make ends meet. 
That person has a real test of his own, but that test is different. And in light of his circumstances, there's only so much he's going to contribute to the body of Christ, both financially and otherwise. But to the rich, there's great opportunity. Secondly, Paul says, be generous and ready to share. Isn't it obvious that if God has given someone an excess of wealth, he expects that person to share it liberally? I mean, isn't that sort of self-evident? And not just with the church through tax-deductible donations, I should add, but with others in the body of Christ directly as personal gifts, preferably without drawing attention to yourself. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. Out of a heart of mercy for sincere and meaningful need with a thankful heart for what you've received. So a rich person who lives in these ways, that is seeking to please Christ, Paul says, will be storing up for themselves treasure, a foundation for the future. Even as, he says, they take hold of life indeed. Here again, the one who seeks to gain his life will lose it, Jesus said, but the one who's willing to lose his life will gain it eternal. The point being that the rich person who hoards wealth or spends it selfishly will know regret when they see the result counted against them for their eternal blessings. But the rich person who is generous, sharing in what they have, rich in good works, will be storing up a treasure that can never perish. This lifestyle, though, requires a faith that's willing to fix its hope on the promises of God over the false security that's offered in material wealth. And it's a test that many don't pass very well. It's a reason not to want to be rich, as I said earlier. But for those with wealth who have the self-discipline and the godliness to make it work, it's a tremendous opportunity to glorify Christ. If you're the kind to have a heart to manage this well and God dumps a lot of money in your lap, he's just giving you that much more capacity to glorify Christ. Which Paul says will result in the rich Christian taking hold of life indeed. I think what he means here is that the Christian who fails, the rich Christian who fails to live like this, they have some superficial form of life. They've got all of the trappings of life, the fancy things of life. They've got the things that everyone wishes they had, but it's not life indeed. It's not the kind of rich contentment that can only come when you're serving Christ. Whatever joy you find with fancy houses and big cars and yachts and vacation homes and gold and silver, it's not true joy. It's an imitation, and it ultimately disappoints. Paul says if you want to take hold of life indeed, which is to say a life of meaning and joy, then find it by knowing Christ, pursuing Christ, and serving Christ. Putting everything you have to work in that regard, setting your eyes on eternity. By the way, this does not mean you have to become a pastor or a monk or a missionary on the other side of the world. Don't run to the caricatures of what Paul is saying. Because when you do that, you give yourself excuse not to pursue them because they're so unrealistic and out of reach. The more proper way to understand this is from wherever you sit and whatever place in life you occupy. Be the best retiree, the best student, the best wife, the best husband, the best whatever, with a mindset of sharing and doing good works and using your freedom to benefit the body, seeking contentment without jealousy and strife and envy, being able to work within the constraints God has given you. We all find some test in life different than the person sitting next to us, but we all have the same opportunity and we're all seeking the same goal. And with that, Paul ends the letter with a benediction and a final charge. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. This is one of only two Pauline letters in the Bible that don't end with a final greeting. The letter stays all business, all the way to the end. And yet he does add this endearing personal touch by saying, Oh, Timothy, clearly that would tell you he's concerned for this young man. He's got some sincere personal desire to make him strong. He dearly wants Timothy to succeed. He wants him to avoid the traps. And so to do that, Paul gives Timothy 
Two final pieces of advice. First, he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard the flock. Guard your spiritual gift. That is, don't neglect it. Guard your testimony. Guard your life. Guarding would imply vigilance. That is, Timothy has to stay alert. He has to be aware of the threats. If you're hoping that these things won't happen to you, hope is not a plan. You have to decide and plan to be different. You have to decide what is going to change. You have to say to yourself, I will do this, I won't do that. You have to guard against the next scheme, the next temptation. You have to put fences up in your life to prevent the kinds of behavior you want to stop. Or you have to find friends to encourage you in the right way. Otherwise, what your flesh wants, it will continue to get. Secondly, he tells Timothy, you must avoid getting sucked into empty chatter and the opposing arguments of false teachers. Remember, these false teachers, we said earlier, they're not ignorant. They're not uninformed. They don't need the benefit of your debate and your education. They're willfully misleading others with their false teaching. So there is no point in engaging with them on any question or debate. Instead, Timothy is told, just avoid them altogether. And I think, unfortunately, many apologetic teachers and the like in the body of Christ overlook this last piece of advice. They embroil themselves in what I think are unhelpful debates with men who are not sincerely seeking the truth. And that's why Verse by Verse Ministry and myself personally, we follow this principle as a ministry and I do individually. We do not engage in debates. You'll never see me on a stage debating someone, ever. Nor will we answer challenges that come to us by email or otherwise from those who demonstrate an unteachable heart or who are willing to clearly ignore plain spoken scripture because they prefer to think differently. We just won't enter into a debate because there's no point They have decided they will have a position or a belief that Scripture cannot counsel them out of. Well, what am I going to do then for them? I can't give them better argument than Scripture. Those who fail in this regard, I think, find themselves entrapped by the very false doctrines they attempt to refute. That is, what they started to try to fight against, they might actually get assumed into. Which is why Paul says, some who have professed the truth have thus gone astray, he says. They went astray because they went into the fight to attack and ended up being coerced into believing the very false thing they were trying to defend against. And that was Paul's concern for Timothy. He says, grace to you, that is, by grace you'll stand. And that's how we'll end the letter to, in God's grace. I hope you've learned a few things along the way that will help you not only deal with you know, particular issues you might find in your church with pastors and the like, but in your own life individually. Father, give us a heart to hear and know what you've taught to be true to make the changes in our life that need to be made as you gave Timothy these instructions. So us as well, will we listen, Father? Will we do what you ask us to do? I pray that you would call us to do so. Show us how to do so. Give us the courage to do so. Protect us, Father, from love of money. Protect us, Father, from false teaching that would tell us that what we want in our flesh is what we should want. Help the church, Father, in the times of false teachers who are spreading these lies. And I pray, Father, that in all the men you have appointed over us in spiritual giftings of one kind or another, leadership positions of one kind or another, that you would continue, Father, by your word to encourage as many as you can, as many as you would, so that the church can be held in the care of of godliness, of men who care more about you than they do about this world. And may we follow after them as their flock. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.